All right, so we're about to embark on a study of one of the simplest books in the Bible, and yet one of the most profound books in the Bible. And so the Greek words that the author used to write this gospel, I'm told, are very, very basic, super basic, and yet the profound theological truths that he presents in these 21 chapters have absolutely inspired millions of people for some 2,000 years. And so the gospel, right, that we have opened up before us this morning is an absolute treasure, and I'm excited to go through it with you throughout 2022, and if the Lord tarries, uh, into 2023. Now, before we get into verses one through three, we gotta discuss the author. And so since he was a humble man, he never gave us his name in the narrative. He only described himself in chapter 21 as, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved. All right, so who is this disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, although he didn't share his name in the narrative, it really isn't that hard to figure out. And the reason why is because the early church father, Irenaeus, um, he told us exactly who wrote this gospel. Irenaeus, by the way, his words carry weight because his life was not that far removed from the life of the apostles. Irenaeus was born in the first half of the second century AD. Irenaeus was taught by the famous bishop and martyr Polycarp. And Polycarp was taught, personally taught, by a man named John. Now there's lots of John, so which John taught Polycarp, who taught Irenaeus? Well, it's John, the son of um, Zebedee and Salome. It's John, the brother of James. It's John, who as a young man, uh, worked hard in his dad's fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. By the way, quick side note, if you ever go with us to Israel, we'll take you there. And one of my uh, most exciting memories uh, in my life is the first time I went to Israel. And uh, we went up into the northern Galilee part and we turned the corner and I looked out the window of the bus and there was the Sea of Galilee. I was so excited, why? Because I had been reading about it for decades in the Bible and now I was actually seeing it. How many of you guys know that this book isn't a bunch of myths based on fiction, but it's fact based on history and geography and archeology? span It's God's word. And you can go there if you'll go with us. And so what John, John the son of Zebedee and Salome, brother of James, uh, worked in his dad's fishing business on the Sea of Galilee, later became an apostle of Jesus. That John. All right, so Irenaeus tells us in his book Against Heresies that the um, author of the fourth gospel is that John. And Irenaeus also tells us that John wrote it as an elderly man from the town of Ephesus after Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their gospels. So Irenaeus says it's John. This makes sense, right? Because the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's a phrase of intimacy. And that would tell us that this guy most likely was one of the inner three. Now you all all have heard about the 12 apostles, right? How many of you guys have heard about the inner three? You guys remember the names of the inner three? Peter, James, and 
John. Well, we know Peter didn't write the gospel because his name is, is, is there over and over and over and over many times. Peter did this, Peter did that, Peter said this, Peter said that. So we know Peter didn't write this gospel. We know James didn't write this gospel because James was killed by Herod way back in Acts chapter 12, right around AD 45. That leaves us with John. Who wrote the gospel? John. When was it written? Well, regarding when John wrote the gospel, I have to mention the discovery of the John Rylands fragment. And so, uh, by the way, uh, Pastor Andrew actually uh, has a replica of this in his office. Uh, he handed it to me. I don't know where it is now. It got lost somewhere. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought it was really cool that he has a replica of that. It's kind of nerdy, by the way, uh, but it's super cool. And by the way, he gave me permission uh, to tell you guys that he is a nerd and he loves Greek. Uh, unlike Andrew, uh, I took Greek and I got a D plus and a C minus when I was in Bible college. But nonetheless, there we have the John Rylands fragment, also known as P52. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a papyrus fragment that was discovered in Egypt and contains part of five verses, listen, from John chapter 18. Now you know what's exciting about that? That scholars dated back to around AD 117 to 138. And so that, what you're looking at right now, is the oldest undisputed partial copy of the New Testament that we have in our possession. And so when you consider the idea that after John wrote John, and then after somebody else copied it, and somebody else copied it, and somebody else copied it, and copied it, and copied it, no printing press by hand, and then sent it out, right, all the way down to Egypt by AD 117 to 138, and when we consider that Irenaeus told us that John wrote the gospel after Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their gospels, this is what we come up with, and that is the author, as I said, is the Apostle John, and the date, not an exact science, but it's around A.D. 85 to 95. Now, why is this so important? Here's why, listen. Because you need to know, if you're new to Christianity, or new to the church, or new to the Bible, that ladies and gentlemen, the New Testament was written in the first century A.D. And it was written by eyewitnesses, or the associates of eyewitnesses. So don't even think that maybe the New Testament was written you know, mid-second century or late-second century by a bunch of people who wanted to make up a religion. Nothing could be further from the truth. The New Testament was written by eyewitnesses or the associates of eyewitnesses who saw the Lord Jesus Christ, who saw his miracles, who saw his death, who saw his resurrection, and even saw his ascension into heaven, and they wrote it down. This is not fable, this is true truth. That's 117 to 138 AD. And that's a copy. And so, since the Christian community already had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and by the way, I personally believe, my opinion, that John, while, while he was pastoring in Ephesus as an elderly man, I think he had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think just like I'm teaching you John, I think he taught Matthew, Mark, and Luke to his congregation. And so, if Matthew, Mark, and Luke are already um, circulating around the Roman Empire and around churches, if the Christian community already had those synoptic gospels, then why would John feel the need to write a fourth gospel? 
And by the way, what I'm doing here, obviously, is I'm giving an introduction to the book before we get into the prologue of the book. And so why would he write a fourth gospel? Well, one of the reasons was because there was a lot about the life and ministry of Jesus, a lot about his words and works that the synoptic gospels did not record. I keep saying the word synoptic, and some of you guys aren't familiar with the term. The word literally means together sight. In other words, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of see things together. In other words, um, they present a similar view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke present a similar view of the life and ministry of Jesus. John is very unique. For example, John gave us eight signs or miracles that prove that Jesus wasn't as the Christ, the Son of God. What are they? And I can't wait in the coming weeks and months to get into this stuff with you. But Jesus turned water into wine. Do you guys know anybody who ever did that? Jesus healed the royal official's son. Jesus healed the crippled man in chapter five. He fed the 5,000 in chapter six. He walked on water. Do you guys know anybody who ever did that? Eyewitnesses saw it, they wrote it down. Jesus healed a man born blind. He, this is exciting, raised Lazarus from the dead. And of course, the last chapter in John, um, I think we'll get there in about five years. Just kidding. Is the miraculous catch of fish there on the Sea of Galilee. Now, why, why am I bringing all this up? I'm bringing all this up to tell you that only two of those miraculous signs were recorded elsewhere. In other words, the feeding of the 5,000, bottom left column. Did you guys know that outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the only miracle that's recorded by all four gospels? The feeding of the 5,000. And walking on water, top of the right column, um, that was also recorded by Matthew and Mark. What's the point? The point is that the other six miraculous signs of Jesus turning water into wine, healing the official son, healing the crippled man, healing the man born blind, raising Lazarus from the dead, the miraculous catch of fish. They are unique to John's gospel. And so we're very thankful that the Holy Spirit led an elderly man named John in a city called Ephesus to write this fourth gospel. Not only that, John uniquely recorded Jesus' seven I am statements, which are figurative titles that point to the true identity of the Son of God. And I can't wait to get into these with you and talk about how Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And my favorite, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And I am the true vine. What's your point? My point is that none of those are recorded in the synoptic gospels. And so we're thankful that the Holy Spirit prompted an elderly man named John um, who's living in a town called Ephesus to write this fourth gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic, similar, John, unique. Even though John is unique, a unique look at the life of Jesus, you need to know that John is in complete unity with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Complete unity. 
And so that is why some have proposed um, the, the thought, which I agree with, that there are not four gospels. Ladies and gentlemen, there's one gospel from four different viewpoints. And so we have the author, we have the date, and what about the theme of John as we introduce the book? Well, bottom of your screen, I love this, the theme are the words and works of the great I am. You say Jesus, you're saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the great I am? You bet your bottom dollar. Let me tell you a little story from John chapter eight. You see, Jesus was in a heated debate, a heated argument with the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day. I call the, the Pharisees the party poopers. These are the legalists of the day. These are the guys that followed Jesus around and criticized him all the time. They were so jealous of Jesus because the crowds were going to Jesus and not to them. And so they're in a heated debate with the one that they're jealous of and these guys prided themselves on being the descendants of Father Abraham. Abraham, written about in Genesis, who lived about 2,000 years before Christ. And so during the debate, they asked Jesus, quote, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? So they're ticked. And Jesus replied, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day he saw it, and he was glad. And they replied, you're not even 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham, right? Jesus, are you talking about the same Abraham we're talking about who lived 2,000 years ago? And then Jesus said these shocking words. Look at this. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, go ahead and shout out the next two words. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Why did the Pharisees pick up stones to throw at Jesus? It wasn't because he said, I'm a great teacher. It wasn't because he said, I'm a great prophet. They picked up stones to stone Jesus because he said, he claimed to be the great I am. And to them, that was blasphemy which under the law of Moses was punishable by death. So who is the great I am? If you've been reading in Exodus, you know. The great I am is the one who revealed himself to Moses from the burning bush. So you have Abraham around 2000 BC, you have Moses around 14, 1500 BC, and you remember the story, he's there, the bush is burning, and yet the bush is not consumed, and what does God do? God reveals himself to Moses, Yahweh God. And during that encounter, Moses said to God, quote, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? <clears throat> what shall I say to them? And I want you to look now at God's response. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. Go ahead and shout out the next two words. I am has sent me to you. Do you guys see it? God used that special name 
um, to let Moses know that he is, that he has always been and he will always be, that he is the eternal and self-existent one. And Jesus tells the religious leaders before Abraham was, I am, thus giving himself the same title as God because, ladies and gentlemen, hear this, Jesus Christ was and is God in the flesh. That's the true Christ. That's the true Jesus. Now, as we get into the opening verses of John, uh, you need to know that the deity of Christ is emphatically proclaimed. And so when we come to John, right, the opening chapter of John, there is no little town of Bethlehem. There is no manger scene. There is no angels singing or shepherds quaking. Um, there, is no, there are no wise men from the east. There is no genealogy of Jesus. So John, he knew Matthew or Luke have already recorded those events. It's not that he um, didn't believe they were true. He believed they were true, but Matthew or Luke had already recorded those events, so he saw no need to record them again. No, John, the Holy Spirit prompts John to go way further back. We're talking about way, way back. We're talking about all the way to the beginning. And so right now, if you're looking at John chapter one, verse one, can you just say amen so I know you're with me here? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And in case you didn't hear from verse one, that the word was with God, he says in verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Verse three, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All right, so John began his gospel with the words, in the beginning. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody here? Yeah. It should remind you of the very first verse in the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so when John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning, you need to know that he was referring to creation, the time of creation. So if you're listening right now, say amen here. I know we're going deep into theology, but this is where we are in the Bible, and it's so important that you understand the true Christ. It's so important that you understand the person of Jesus Christ. I gotta tell you that I put hours and hours into the study this week because I know it's dealing with what's called Christology. Ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to Christology, the study of the person of Christ, and when it comes to soteriology, the study of salvation, you had better get it right. So this is so important that you listen with dumbo ears and with an open heart and you engage your mind to understand who the true Christ is. And so you can identify the false Christs of the cults. And so once again, in the beginning, in other words, at the time of creation, the word was already existing. 
Now, I'm gonna get into the pre-existent Christ here in a moment, but first, we gotta talk about the word, right? The Greek word for word is logos. Regarding that word, John MacArthur, in his commentary, wrote this. He said, the apostle John borrowed the use of the term word, logos, not only from the vocabulary of the Old Testament, but also from, the, from Greek philosophy, in which the term was essentially, uh, please note this, impersonal, signifying the rational principle of divine reason, mind, or even wisdom. And so John the Apostle borrows a, a, a term from the Greeks, but here's what you need to know. John the Apostle did not agree with how the Greeks defined the term, okay? And so the ancient Greeks, they taught that the logos was an impersonal principle. An impersonal principle. And John comes on the scene and John would say, no, 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 no. And John actually corrects the Greek philosophers by saying this. John says the logos is not impersonal. The logos is a person. The logos is not an it. The logos is a he. All right, so who is the logos? Who is the word? And John tells us, skip all the way down to verse 14, and we'll find out who the word was and is. So right now, if you're looking at John chapter one, verse 14, just say amen. Here it is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I can't wait to get to that passage in weeks ahead. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only, and I want you guys to shout out the next word, son. There is the identity of the word. There is the identity of the logos, the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The Word is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That's why Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words uh, defines logos as, quote, it denotes the expression of thought, and it's a title of the Son of God. And so the logos is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who perfectly expressed the mind of God. I want to say that again. The Logos is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who perfectly expressed the mind of God. And that's why John wrote, please look down at chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. <laughs> he has made him known. Who is John talking about in verse 18? He's talking about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. By the way, verse 18 is a powerful verse proclaiming the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The perfect expression of the mind of God. And so in the beginning, 
was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, what three truths can we pull from this passage if you're taking notes? Well, first of all, you need to know that John describes the Son of God as pre-existent. Pre-existent. So what are we doing here? We're talking about the person of Jesus Christ, the true Christ. And so it's so important that you guys understand, first of all, John describes him as pre-existent, and we get that from, in the beginning was the word. Can you guys shout out the word was, please? Was. Very, very important verb. In other words, what John was saying is that the logos, the word, existed before creation. And so this will blow your mind. But listen, if you in your mind go all the way back to the creation of the space-time material universe, go all the way back to creation, and then go back farther than that, the word comes out of eternity to greet you. It's crazy. It's awesome, better said. And so Chuck Swindoll wrote this, and I quote, the verb translated was is the imperfect past tense of the Greek verb me, which means to be, to be. John Phillips, regarding all this, he wrote this. The verb John uses, was, right? The verb John uses takes us into the sphere of the timeless. The word did not have a beginning. The word will never have an ending. I want you to feel the full force of who this Christ is. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what you need to know. Angels had a beginning. The word did not. The universe had a beginning. The word did not. Human beings had a beginning. The word did not. The word had no beginning and he will have no end. That's awesome about who the true Christ is. And so somebody again says, that blows my mind. Well, here's why. It's because you're a finite being like me and we are subject to time. But the word is the infinite being who is in continual existence outside of time. And so what three truths can we pull from this passage? Well, first of all, John describes the Son of God as pre-existent. He was already in existence, continually existing before creation, but then also co-existent. I love this. He says, and the Word was with God. Can you guys please shout out the word with? All right, so the word with speaks of communion. In other words, the Son was in perfect communion with the Father before the creation of the universe. Man, how many of you guys know that Jesus Christ is absolutely awesome? Think about this. The Son was in perfect communion with the Father before the creation of the universe. You say, why is it such a big deal? Here's why, because one day you and I are gonna see him face to face. We're gonna see this Christ. The question is, are you prepared to see him? And so not just pre-existent, but also co-existent. And did you guys know 
that Jesus was fully cognizant. He knew, right, that he was with the Father before the creation of the universe. The reason I know that is because I've read John chapter 17, Christ's high priestly prayer. Check out what Jesus said. He's praying to the Father and he says, now Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory, look at this, that I had with you before the world existed. It's awesome. Now of course, this brings up the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. And so right now, here's what, we're, here's what we're doing. We're treading on holy ground, and so I'm gonna stick real close to my notes here because I can't get this wrong, all right? And so through the progressive revelation of the New Testament, we see that there is one God. Can you guys please say one God? Okay, so hey, listen. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. And so through the progressive revelation of the New Testament, we see that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now I know that a symbol cannot fully explain the infinite God, but this is one of the best ones that I know of that's out there. Uh, I got this from Got Questions. And so just as the one triangle has three equal sides, showing a oneness and a threeness simultaneously, so there are three co-equal and co-eternal persons within the one Godhead. So what you gotta understand is that the one divine essence of the Godhead cannot be divided. In other words, God doesn't have parts. Okay, so don't, don't misunderstand. We're not saying that, you know, the Father is a third part of God, and the Son is a third part of God, and the Spirit is a third part of God. No, okay? Please look at the middle of the triangle. Here's the truth. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. And the Holy Spirit is fully God. So if you agree with that, please say amen. amen. All right, now in their personhood, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. They are three distinct persons, three centers of consciousness. Now please understand this as well. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not three different modes. And I tell you, I could go on and on and on, and we could take 10 years to go through John, and I can't, I just don't have the time. And so modalism, if you wanna learn more about modalism, you can go to God Questions, and you can pull up plenty of articles about that. Okay, so, so we don't believe the Father, Son, and Spirit are different modes. Again, we believe there is one God who is eternally existing who eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, a beautiful picture of the Trinity is the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Matthew chapter three tells us all about it. He talks about how Christ the Son, right, he's there. And by the way, another quick side note. 
if you go with us to Israel, we're gonna take you to two different spots on the Jordan River. We're gonna take you to a spot upriver close to the Sea of Galilee, which is beautiful and the water's gorgeous and there's flowers and there's trees and if you wanna get baptized, we'll baptize you there. But we're also gonna take you later in the week all the way down to the Dead Sea and just north of the Dead Sea as the Jordan flows into the Dead Sea and that is actually the area where we believe John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And I tell you, um, I've sensed the presence of God in my life quite often but there hasn't been many times where I've sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit stronger than when we went down to the Jordan River just north of the Dead Sea and just to think that Jesus was baptized here. It's an amazing experience. But here's what Matthew tells us, that as Jesus was coming out of the water, the heavens opened and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove And then the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. One God, three persons, the Father speaking, the Son coming out of the water, the Spirit descending like a dove. Before he he ascended back into heaven, Jesus, Jesus, the risen Christ, he, he gathered his disciples one of my life verses, here's what he said. He said, all authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Listen, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe uh, all things that I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Christ gave a command. He wants, as we make disciples, he wants us to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the first Thursday of every single month when we dunk you, we do it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You say, why don't you baptize in the name of Jesus Christ like Peter did in Acts chapter two? Well listen, there's nothing wrong with what Peter did in Acts chapter two. But what you gotta understand is the context and the audience of who Peter was talking to. Peter was talking to Jews. Jews who up to that point had rejected Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And so Peter needs to make Jesus center stage, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But then different context, different audience, when the Lord is getting ready to send out his disciples to all nations, pagan nations who don't have a clue about the true God, he wants them to know something about God, and he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you, one person, for saying amen. I love this stuff. And listen, there's nothing more important than obeying the Great Commission and making disciples of Jesus Christ. So there's so much more to say about the Trinity but for time's sake, I refer you to God questions. Now, what three truths can we pull from this passage? John describes the Son of God as preexistent. He describes the Son of God as coexistent, and he describes the Son of God as self-existent. Look at the bottom of the screen. Get ready here. And the word, can you shout out the next two words, please? Now, does it get any clearer than that? 
It doesn't get any clearer than that. And so in his divine nature, the Son of God is not dependent on anyone or anything for his existence. Again, he's the great I am. He is the self-existent one. Now here's what's sad. You have these different religious groups like the Jehovah Witnesses, and like the Mormons, and like other cults and false religions. And what do they do? They deny the deity of Christ as it is presented in the New Testament as it is in truth. In the New World Translation used by the Jehovah Witnesses, John 1.1 looks like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Now that is a mistranslation, and that is why it gets a frowny face. We're talking about you know, the group that knocks on people's doors on Saturday, and now their new technique is to send you a card of invitation in the mail or a handwritten note to invite you um, uh, to their group. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a mistranslation. What did the scholar Dr. Charles Feinberg say about that translation during his lifetime? Quote, I can assure you that the rendering which the, the Jehovah Witnesses give John 1.1 is not held by any reputable Greek scholar. And, and so you say, what are you doing, pastor? I'm pointing this out. You say, this, this sounds kind of mean. You know, you're being mean. No, 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 here, you misunderstand. I'm being a shepherd. I'm being a pastor. You guys are the flock and I'm the shepherd. And so what's one of my jobs? To protect you from false teaching and what's more important than who Christ is the true personhood of Jesus Christ and so what you got to understand is this the Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was created by Jehovah as an angel as Michael the archangel and that he's the highest created being and that is not the biblical Jesus the biblical Jesus is the one who said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The biblical Jesus is the one who said in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And so this is what I'm encouraging you to, you to do, church family. Know the written word and have a close relationship with the living word. Because if you know the written word and you have a close relationship with the living word, you won't be deceived by these false teachings. Make no mistake about it, Jesus claimed to be God, clearly. And regarding that claim, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I'm, a, I'm, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't ex accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
a man who was merely a man and said, this, this is awesome, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. He says, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Ladies and gentlemen, here's, here's what you need to know. It's so awesome, such a powerful statement because anyone who said the kind of things that Jesus said about himself, right? And if they weren't true, he's not a great moral teacher. <laughs> Anybody who says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> I'm the true vine. Anybody who said those things about himself and was lying, they're not a great moral teacher. And so here's what we gotta do. We gotta come to grips with the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. And you keep reading the New Testament and his disciples claimed that he was God. The million dollar question is, what do you say? Because listen, if he said all those things about himself, and he was lying, well then he's a liar. If he said all those things about himself and you know he was just deluded, then he's a lunatic. But if he said all those things about himself and they're true, he's Lord. And we should fall at our feet and worship him as Yahweh God. Did you guys know that Jesus accepted worship in his life? in his ministry, the Bible, the Old Testament is very clear. You worship God alone. Why is Jesus accepting worship? Because he's God. Look at verse three, we're almost done here. It says, all things were made through him. By the way, the word all there means all. <laughs> so all things were made, created through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so far from being a created being, the Word, the Son of God, is the creator of all things. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, John was asserting that the Word existed before all creatures and that the Word was a co-worker with the Father. He was an equal creator of everything along with the Father. For this reason, we can never think of the Word as something created. The Word is eternal. And this is why he can't be considered an angel. Instead, he is Lord and creator of angels and of all other creatures. I'll say it one last time. Jesus was not Michael the Archangel, he was and is the eternal God, creator of all things. And so in closing, we know the author, we know the date, we know the theme, 
but what's the purpose? So why did an elderly man named John from a city called Ephesus write this four gospel? Well, in his words, I'll quote him, so that we might believe. Can you guys shout out the word believe, please? That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So if you believe, you have eternal life. If you don't believe, you don't have eternal life. I hope you see how important this study is and how important our response is to the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so when you think about the word believe, it means trust, place your faith in, place your confidence in, place your trust in. And so here's the thing, you say I believe, right, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. I believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. I believe that, that Jesus is, is divine. Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, I'm so happy. But now here's my question. Have you placed your faith, your trust, your confidence in the true Jesus? And so, um, as I say always, uh, we do have the gospel and it's on our website. It's very clear. Uh, you go to calvarypsl.com, you click on I'm new here, you click on knowing Christ, read, understand the gospel, and then here's, here, here's what I wanna encourage you to do. If you've never done this, I wanna encourage you to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of your life. Place your faith, your trust, your confidence in him. Believe that you're a sinner. The wages of sin is death but that Jesus loves you and he came and he paid for your sins on the cross in full. He died so you wouldn't have to die and go to hell and he rose again the third day and now he says, as many as received him, John says this in John 1:12. as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God even to those who believe on his name.